Good morning. The readings today is taken from uh, the readings today are taken from Isaiah chapter twenty-five verses six to nine, and as well from Isaiah chapter fifty-three verses three through six, ten through eleven. You may follow along on the bulletin on page six. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food and all people, for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears of all, from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. For like one whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Before I begin, I want to uh, remind you that we will have a Q&A time right after this uh, sermon, uh, after this talk, a time for you to freely and openly ask whatever questions come to your mind. So feel free to jot different questions down and ask them. Uh, anything is fair game, uh, so don't hold back even if you're brand new to our community. Uh, just a way for us to process, digest, and interact over uh, what we're learning. Um, secondly, uh, we do have books out on the welcome table uh, that are compliments of the church, so a gift to you if you're someone that's exploring the Christian faith, a great, wonderful book that works through a lot of questions and doubts and uncertainties that a lot of us have um, about the Christian faith, about God in general. It's called The Reason for God, uh, written by Dr. Tim Keller, who is a pastor, author um, in New York City. So please do feel free to, on your way out, take one, no questions asked, no strings attached, uh, a, a gift that we want to give to you 
if you are exploring, investigating uh, the Christian faith. And lastly, if you want to investigate and explore in person through dialogue, uh, we have our um, pub discussion group. Uh, coming up. We did it last week. Wonderful time together. Uh, we're doing it not tomorrow night, but in two Mondays. Um, we are having Brewing Belief um, right here at Meridian Pint. A chance for you to come and just pepper me with whatever mean questions you can come up with. Uh, no, not mean, but anything is fair game there too. Uh, so feel free to come and relax and talk in a casual environment. would love to um, engage with you in that sort of dialogue in conversation. All right, let's pray together as we start. God, we pray that you would help us during this time. We need you, God. We need you in our hearts. We need you to be working in our minds. And we pray that you would give us clarity of thought, clarity of our desires, um, and that you would show yourself to us. God, we need you. Speak through your word. Give us help. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, last week, we started a new teaching series that we're calling Too Hard to Believe. Uh, Each week, what we're doing is we're looking at a common barrier to belief, things that make it just too hard for a lot of us to embrace the Christian gospel, to embrace the person and the claims of Jesus Christ. And last Sunday, we started off by looking at this proposal that is so often on our minds and hearts. Maybe it's something that you've been wrestling with. Christianity is just too exclusive. Uh, There's so many different religions, so many different views of God. How can there be just one true religion, just one way to God? In fact, isn't it arrogant, even dangerous, to think like that? tackled that last week. If you want to hear the audio sermon online, you can find it on our website. Today, we're looking at this issue. There's just too much suffering and evil in the world. Too much pain. And if God is good or loving, how can he just allow things to be this way? And if it is this way, then no way. No thanks. So often we grapple with this and we feel like we're forced to choose between what just a few nasty options. None of them seem to satisfy. Uh, either you got to believe in a God that's all powerful, but not all good, who could do something to resolve these issues of pain and evil, but just doesn't seem to care. Or, on the other hand, You feel forced to believe in a God that actually is all good, has the best of intentions in the world, but can't do anything about it. Not all powerful. Or maybe you just feel like, hey, if it's so hard to figure it out, maybe he's just not worth knowing, this God. And so I'm not even going to bother. These are great issues to wrestle with. Great questions, because, friends, isn't it true, we do live in a terribly broken, pain-filled world. And a lot of you may be here today because of such sources of pain in your life. For a lot of us, it's not simply a philosophical puzzle, but a deeply personal 
suffering, hurt, heartache. Maybe you've recently lost a loved one in a tragic way. Or maybe you yourself are struggling with a chronic disease or a debilitating condition. That's just enough to get you wondering once in a while, what's up with this, God? What is up with this? Or maybe you work in a field that has you on the front lines of the evil and suffering of this world. Might be international development, law enforcement, maybe you're a nurse or some kind of a healthcare worker. And at times, perhaps you're puzzled, at other times, maybe resentful towards God, maybe terrified. Maybe you have these thoughts and feelings about what feels like unfairness, injustice, and you don't even know what to do with it, and so you just push it aside and don't really grapple with it. Or if you're like me, maybe it's the more that you get to know the realities of the lives of our neighborhood kids, some of them that live in fear every single day. Or the more you get to know issues like human trafficking, that abounds not only globally and not only nationally, but even in our very own neighborhood. It's personal, isn't it? And I tell you the truth, today, this morning, it feels very personal for me. Last night, just got in late, long train ride down from Connecticut. And Paula, Elena, and I, we went up there actually to be a part of a wedding, Uh, Paula's cousin, um, whom she grew up with, who was getting uh, married this past weekend, and I was actually invited to do the wedding, to be the officiant of the wedding, but under very difficult, difficult circumstances. Uh, Jenny, Paula's cousin, uh, has a mom, her mom, who has been struggling uh, with cancer for the past couple of years, Um, in fact, dying of Cancer, And the expectation was that she'd be able to do the wedding next spring. But in the last couple of months, it became clear that they really needed to push up the wedding sooner because they wanted their mom to be a part of it as much as she was able to. So that was moved to this weekend. We went down or went up uh, to visit the family to be a part of this wedding. Already there was a little bit of a cloud of sorrow and sadness uh, surrounding the circumstances. But then just last Wednesday, uh, her condition turned for the worse. Uh, visited Paula's aunt, who actually was one of the several individuals in Paula's family that basically raised Paula as a little girl, uh, very involved in her life. Um, Went straight to the hospital um, and really had a, a meaningful time. I mean, she was in pretty bad shape, very weak, but a meaningful time hearing her words of faith, uh, telling us that she had peace with where she was at, that she was ready to go and be with Jesus, that she'll see us again one day. And then the night before the wedding, her condition got even worse. And so the decision was made, well, it looks like, sadly, mom is not going to be able to be at the wedding, and so let's go ahead and go to the hospital uh, just a little bit before the wedding. The bride, her daughter in her wedding gown, and the groom by her side, and let's just go together as an immediate family, brother, dad, myself, one of the aunts, and let's just have a little mini family ceremony. We'll go there, and we will um, just go through a little portion of the ceremony so that mom could be a part of it, whether or not she was fully aware of what was going on. 
that she would just know that we're there and maybe hear and understand a few of our words. So we gathered uh, about an hour uh, before the ceremony, bride looking beautiful, husband, groom uh, in his tux, everyone ready to go, shared a few words from Scripture, trying to comfort the mother. Uh, God's going to take care of your daughter. You don't have to worry about her. And unexpectedly and somehow mind-bogglingly in the middle of that time, Her mom passed. And you sit there, and with all the emotions that are just exploding and erupting in that time, 45 minutes before the scheduled wedding ceremony, and hearing, and I can even still hear, this is just yesterday, folks, just a couple hours before, still able to hear her husband, Paula's uncle, uh, just shouting out, Why now? Why now? himself so desperately wanting his daughter to have her wedding at least in some semblance of joy and comfort and gratitude and all, and yet hear this unexpected turn of events. And you sit there, and I can say the question too in my heart, why now, God? Why now? Why this? Why her? Why so close to the wedding? You know, and the truth is, long story short, it turned, by God's grace, it turned out to be a very meaningful ceremony. We went ahead with it, had to do a lot of talking through things with people, guiding them, giving people permission to cry and laugh at the same time, to be full of sadness and full of joy for this young man and young woman that were coming together to be married, Lord willing, all the days of their lives, and yet to be able to grieve the loss of this aunt, this mother, this friend, of many. We live in a broken world, and sometimes it doesn't all add up, does it? And sometimes it makes you want to just step back and say, what is going on, God? Because if you really do love this family, or if you really are good, why this? Or why them? What I want to do in our time remaining is examine three ways that we generally tend to try to resolve this problem or solve this problem. Sort of overcome this barrier of suffering in the goodness of God. What do we typically tend to do? And what I'm going to do is try to interact with two passages that we have in front of us that you heard just read from the prophet Isaiah. Both of them, you might have noticed, actually address the topic of suffering. The first one, Isaiah 25, offers one of the grandest promises in all of the Bible about the future of suffering in this world. And the second passage, part of what's often called the Songs of the Suffering Servant, tell us about the suffering of one individual in the Bible in the past. Interact with those things and talk about ways that we try to solve this barrier of the suffering of this world. Three ways we try to do this. Three ways we try to cope and solve the problem. Number one... We try to erase God. Erase God. We get frustrated, we get angry, and so a lot of people abandon the idea of God altogether. Well, if He's not all good, and He is all powerful, and yet in the face of evil, He's not going to do anything about it, then I don't want to believe that He even exists. Or if He is all good, but he's just as helpless as I am to heal the wounds of this world, 
then I don't want to have anything to, uh, I don't want to have anything to do with him. Or I don't believe that that kind of God can exist. For some of you, it's driven you to formal atheism. For others of you, a practical atheism or even agnosticism. But consider this, friends. I know not all of you are football fans, but we're coming out of a few crazy weeks of the first opening weeks of football because of these wily characters called the replacement refs. NFL has been embroiled in a bit of a refereeing controversy where because of contract negotiations, the normal expert referees have not been on hand and other men who are perhaps less trained, perhaps less competent than the others have been not only refing games, but apparently making a lot of mistakes. Everything came to a head a couple weeks ago when in a fine match between the Seattle Seahawks and the Green Bay Packers, Uh, A wild ending to the game, a Hail Mary, a big pass, a catch that was controversial. Was it a touchdown? Was it an interception? One ref says yes, one ref says no. Everyone says this is terrible. (laughs) Get the real refs back. This is an outrage. One loud group of people, generally from Seattle saying that was a touchdown, a fair catch. Of course it was fair. Another group generally from Green Bay saying that was an interception. Okay, not just Green Bay, most human beings uh, who could see the replay. But listen, the fact, whether or not you saw the game, the fact that you could even be mad about the call, whichever side of the call you fell down on, was because you believed that there were rules to the game that could not be changed. That there was some objective standard about how the game should be played that you could appeal to even if there were replacement refs. You could say, this is what's in the rule book, and this is how we decide whether it's a touchdown or not. You see, we want to object to God because of evil and suffering. We want to object. All of our objections are based upon some sense of fairness, right? We say that suffering is bad, or we say that people shouldn't suffer. It's not fair. And you might say that our frustration, our anger, our moral outrage against the sufferings of our world or of our own lives is based on this deep sense that we have that no matter who the refs are, there is a rule book out there. There is a rule book out there and it tells us that evil and pain and suffering is most definitely a turnover in the game of life. But listen, if there is no God... What is your basis of fairness and wrongness and badness? What's it really based on? Listen to what one former atheist once wrote. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, really unjust, 
Not simply that it did not happen to please my private fantasies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. In other words, ironically, if you're angry at God, but you don't want to believe in God, you're prosecuting this idea of God on the basis of a moral standard that you'd only have if God existed. You erase God, then you erase all ability to be morally outraged, even at God in this world, at the evil in this world. And you can only feel that frustration or that tension or even that anger of injustice if you actually have a standard of good and evil, some sort of moral rule book, and atheism totally strips away your ability to critique our human suffering at all. Do you see atheism, whether if it's formal atheism or you just saying, I just don't even want to deal with this God, it doesn't actually resolve the problem at all. In fact, it makes it worse. Because now you're just staring at what, in fact, is your experience of evil and suffering with no way of accounting for it and certainly no way of actually resolving it. So it doesn't work when we simply try to erase God out of the picture. The second thing that we try to do is we try to erase suffering itself. You actually find this in a lot of Eastern religions, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, um, different philosophies that deny that pain and suffering is even real. Um, Eastern religions, for example, that do explain that the suffering that really does account for all of life, all of life is suffering, but suffering is an illusion. It's not real. Or the Christian science sect of the Christian faith that would also say the same. Erase suffering. Redefine suffering. Tell yourself that it may hurt, but it's not really a part of your true existence. It may be troubling, and it may be harsh, and it may really be something you want to wish away, but it's not really real. The Christian faith gives a different kind of accounting of our suffering, not trying to erase suffering at all. But it says your pain and the pain of this world absolutely is very real. So real, in fact, that God cares about it, engages it, and redeems it. We see this in places like Isaiah chapter 25, verse 7. This shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations, this acknowledgement that all people are mixed in with all the joys and pleasures of life is this experience of terror and trouble and hardship and pain. The Christian faith that says God doesn't say, hey, it's not really real, but it's so real. I care about you. I cry out for you. I am with you in your suffering. Numerous places in the Bible that remind us that not a single incident of pain in your life or in this world is ever forgotten by God. Places like Psalm 56, 8. 
The psalmist talking to God and reflecting with great hope, you have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not written in your book? If you have in your heart or maybe streaming down your faces tears today, will you know that the God of the Christian faith says to you, your tears are not in vain. Your tears are not in vain. No injustice will ever be left unaddressed. No, not in the long run. We'll get to that in a second. God never turns a blind eye to any act of evil. In fact, he takes it personally. In verse 8 of Isaiah 25, we see this language of the sovereign Lord wiping away the tears from all faces. This picture of a God so intimately involved in your life that he reaches his hand out to personally take that tear off your cheek. Have you experienced this of God? Or maybe you haven't, but do you know that there's a God who extends his hand to you in this way? There's a tenderness. There's also a fierceness. In verse 7, there's almost this violent almost resolve to bring an end to suffering. On this mountain, he will one day destroy the shroud that enfolds all people. He will swallow up death forever. Hearing God's commitment, His resolve to bring an end to pain and evil and injustice and suffering. You see, friends, the God of the Bible is the God who suffers with us. In fact, He's a God who suffers for us. No God in any other faith, tradition, or religion presents a God like this. Isaiah 53 gives us a depiction of a figure that's called the servant of the Lord. As you read it, it's a little bit of a mystery. It would seem who exactly fulfills this description. One who is despised and rejected by men. One who could be called a man of sorrows. Who's not a stranger to suffering, but who is familiar with suffering. One whom the rest of us would hide our faces from, not esteeming him. One who would take up upon himself all the infirmities and sorrows of those who would embrace him in relationship. He carried our sorrows He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Who is this suffering servant? The Bible would say, it is the person of Jesus. The one who would simultaneously be a true human being experiencing all the brokenness of life that we as real human beings also experience. And yet at the same time, truly God himself. 
The Christian understanding of things is that God didn't just stand at a distance, but deliberately subjected himself in the person of Jesus to human suffering. This mind-boggling verse in verse 10 that says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him to suffer. In other words, bearing the pain of the world, not by accident and not as a victim, but as a deliberate act of love, sympathetically experiencing the pain that you and I experience, that he would know us in our broken places, but more than that, so that he would on the cross be able to redeem us in our brokenness, so that by his wounds we might be healed. Do you know a God like this? A God who in Jesus therefore knows firsthand, not through a book, not through another person, not from a distance, knows firsthand hardship, weariness, rejection, loneliness, injustice, poverty, heartache, loss of loved ones, imprisonment, Betrayal, torture, death. The Bible presents to us a God with scars. In the World War I era, said an Englishman by the name of Edward Chilito, who wrote a wonderful poem, copied one stanza for you in the reflection section, the beginning of your bulletin, called Jesus of the Scars. And he writes these four lines comparing the uniqueness of the Christian vision of God with those of other faith traditions and philosophies. And this is what he says. The other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. Not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Other places, other traditions try to erase suffering, define it away, eliminate it, or tell you it's not real. The God of the Christian faith says it is so real that I really did enter into it, experience it with you, even for you. Thirdly, a third way we try to resolve and solve this conundrum of the suffering of our lives and the goodness of God is not just by erasing God or erasing suffering, but escaping suffering. We try to escape Suffering. I don't know if you've thought about this, but all other religions, all solutions that we can come up with as far as how the world ought to work or what we would do with the suffering of the world if we could be God, and what you find in all other religions, including flawed versions of Christianity and including popular versions that are out there of the afterlife, is an offer of an escape from suffering. 
to take you to another place or a better place that's far away from the things that are nipping at your heels or that are sticking a dagger in your heart or your body. To rescue you away from a world of suffering, to take you out of it, to be good to you, and yet at the same time leave the evil and suffering itself unaddressed. You're not hurting any longer, but in fact, it doesn't give you any additional meaning to your present pain. When I was learning how to be a dad, and I still am, but in those early weeks and early days, trying to learn how to change a stinking diaper, uh, the most basic of ways of caring for my infant, newborn daughter, um, one of the things that was a surprise to me was uh, not just the fine art of learning how to work the diaper itself, but the fine art, even martial art, of wrestling my daughter down on the table. And this little thing, just a couple pounds, uh, who somehow had bionic legs uh, that could leg press me far away from her and push me away, and who would scream and cry as if I were trying to harm her. I remember distinctly the first time I saw the look in her eyes when I was in the middle of this little exercise of changing her diaper where she had this look of complete terror, real fear, even cowering away a little bit. It seems because she was convinced that I was there to harm her, to hurt her. Uh, You know, and no matter how much I might try to explain to her, obviously she wouldn't know what I'm doing. Look, Elena, I am trying to change your diaper. I am doing you good. You understand how this diaper works. Here, you need to... She didn't care. She didn't understand anyway. All she would do is look up at me, scream in my face, and basically communicate, you're really trying to kill me here. And you've seen this too, if you've ever tried to change an infant's daughter. She could not comprehend the good that I was doing, and all she could experience was the pain and what she was convinced was harm that was coming her way. Because of the gap between her ability to grasp what was going on and my ability and intentions to care for her. When it comes to the issue of suffering... How much greater is the gap between our ability to comprehend what God is doing in our lives and in this world and God's ability to comprehend and his intentions behind things? How often do we walk away from this, frankly, difficult struggle with the problem of suffering and evil in this world And yet we give up because we say, if I can't figure it out, or if I can't come up with a solution or an explanation, then God must be bad. And yet the truth is, friends, if we have a God in front of us that we're able to figure out in every way, he would not be worthy of our worship, would he? And oh, the possibility that there might be a God whose ways are higher than our ways. A God who, in this passage in Isaiah 25, calls himself the Lord, 
This personal name that he revealed earlier to Moses in the book of Exodus that could be translated, I am who I am. Self-existent, no beginning, no end, infinite, eternal. I am God. As big as your mind can stretch to the expanses of how you might define God, the sovereign Lord, verse 8, we're being invited to picture a very big God. Could it possibly be that even in our experience of pain and suffering, that God is not yet finished and the story is still being written. That there actually is future healing and restoration that God has in store for those who trust in Him. That there actually may be, maybe not today and maybe not tomorrow, but one day, someday, be a way to grasp the meaning of it all. When God shows himself to us face to face, when the physical world is purged of all decay and brokenness, where there's cleansing and renewing, perfecting of the universe that we find described in Isaiah 25, this great hope and promise that one day it's all going to be a party, a feast of rich foods, a banquet that's dripping with aged wine, the best of meats. Mm-hmm. And fine wines, fill in the details, whatever gives you the picture of a great, grand banquet. And on this mountain, this, in this banquet, we're told that he will destroy the shroud of suffering. He will swallow up death forever. He will wipe away tears from all faces. He will remove the people's disgrace from all the earth. He will do it. Here's a God who doesn't just come up next to us and say, I feel your pain, but a God who says, I will eliminate and redeem and restore all the broken places in your life and in this world. That somehow here God offers a future that's not just comfort for our wounds, but restoration for all of our losses emotionally, even physically, personally. That somehow all of our pain will be transformed to make our future life the perfect world and experience that we all deeply long for. You see, none of us presently have perfect, specific reasons for all of our individual pain, but we do have in the Christian Bible the guarantee that your suffering is never meaningless. We don't know what the answer will look like, but we do know that God will answer the question one day, just maybe not today. And so what's before us is not just an escape from suffering, but rather a healing of us in our suffering. And an explanation and a restoration of all of our losses. We do have a guarantee in the meanwhile that God is with us, suffering with us, a God who suffered for us, who doesn't stand far off, but who is near. A God who gives us grounds, even permission 
to have great outrage, even anger at the broken things of this world as he does himself, so much so that he would give up everything to redeem us in our suffering, giving up his son. This suffering servant that's offered to all of us as hope for broken people, pain-filled people in a broken world. There's so many different layers to what this issue, this topic brings up. But could you at least consider this God? Consider Him and consider His offer of Himself to you. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your nearness to us in our pain. Uh, We thank You for Your amazing grace. We thank You for the comfort You give us. And I do pray Your comfort upon the people here today, that you would be speaking to hearts, giving hope, producing convictions. Uh, We need you, God. We bring our hearts to you, and we ask that you would teach us how to look at this and how to feel about this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's ponder this a little bit more, standing and singing this well-known hymn, Amazing Grace.